I always didn't like giving money to organizations. But then when I actually worked for one and I was just like, wait a minute, there's this huge, gorgeous building. They're doing great work, but they're so top heavy. I couldn't, I literally physically couldn't raise money for them. I was a fundraiser. That's when I learned I'm not a fundraiser. Professional level, I'm a realtor. Sometimes I raise money for real estate deals. And I don't look at this mitzvah opportunity group as fundraising. I look at it as raising funds. If I'm raising funds for a real estate deal, I'm giving an investor an opportunity for an incredible ROI. I'm giving people the opportunity to invest in something where the the ROI is, is up to the sky. actually make a difference in unifying the entire world? What are some tools I can use to live a life of more freedom? These are just some of the concepts you'll hear about in every episode of See One Beautiful Soul. So some of you know that for about 25 years, I have been a teacher inside and outside of the classroom, getting to work at over 100 schools and camps, running my own theater programs, mindfulness programs, running my own camps and doing informal Jewish education, running Shabbat programs at different shuls, synagogues, and I really love telling over Hasidic stories and fables because what's wonderful about them is even if they're not true or they have some truth in them, the characters in the stories speak volumes about what it means to do the right thing even when it's difficult and inconvenient. And morality always wins. And even when they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, the people who do the right thing are always rewarded. One of my favorite Hasidish stories is entitled Yosela, the Holy Miser. And I learned this story for years, every single Yom Kippur, with a man by the name of Rabbi Yonah Buchstein, who is a legend here in Los Angeles and also in Long Beach, California. And I've known him for many, many years. I could always look forward to every Yom Kippur towards the end of the day when we're all about to fall on our faces and take a nap. You can sit with Rabbi Yonah and hear this story originally told by Rabbi Shlomo Karlbach, that's all, and feel that your soul takes over your body, that you have the strength to keep going. The story goes, and I'm telling it, we would say in Hebrew, Bikitsor, in a short version, that Yosela, the holy miser, got his name because he was the wealthiest man in Krakow, Poland. And people would come to him from far and wide and say, I know you have a lot of money. Could you please help me with a loan, with uh, some aid? I've, I've got this huge family. I have no money to make a beautiful Shabbos dinner. Please give me some money. And he would always look at them seated next to his coffee and fine cakes and teas and he would scream at them and sometimes push them down the stairs if they asked a second time. People really hated him but as the story goes if people had the courage just to ask him somehow it was if God could hear their prayers and on Thursday morning lo and behold they would open up their door and see a little envelope with lots of money in it just enough to make Shabbat meals for their family and get through the weekend so that they could have another week alive. And so people would keep doing it, even though they would always get a no and sometimes a kick in the pants from him, until one day he passed away. And because people hated him and scorned him so much, nobody showed up to his funeral. And the following Thursday night, many, many families were left hungry. And somebody was able to look at his ledger and see what his finances were. 
and they saw the names of all the poor families on that ledger for years and years and years. He was the one who was giving all the money for all the food in all the town, and people couldn't understand. They were weeping. I, I, I didn't know that he was the one who gave the money. If I had known, of course I would have shown up at his funeral, and I, we're, we're going to bang down the heavens to make sure that he gets there. What I love about that story is two things. Like Shakespeare once said, what seems is not always what is. And you should never, ever judge someone who comes across stingy or mean or nasty. You can't ever really understand or know where another person is coming from, even when they say all the right things, quote unquote. It's always good to give people the benefit of the doubt and ask the question, I wonder if there's something I can do for them, even though I may be asking them to do something for me. And I think it speaks to what my musical, Messianic Moments and Cosmic Conversations is all about and what I'm trying to do with this podcast, which is to bring out the hero in each of us. Sometimes receiving from someone is the highest level of giving. And I'm about to introduce you guys to one of the kindest people in our generation. His name is Donnie Fine. I was introduced to him by another very kind soul, Hillel Fould, who was on my podcast several months ago. And when Hillel says, this person is kind, you listen, because Hillel knows. (laughs) I had the pleasure of meeting Donnie, and I was so choked up listening to what he's up to in this world that I actually started crying. And at one point, you'll hear in my very emotional interview with him that I started calling him Yosela the Holy Miser. Now, the difference between Yosela and this guy is that Donnie is so sweet and funny and, and quirky, and he is so humble that he repeats a few times in the interview, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, anybody could do what I'm doing. But as you start to hear what he's up to, I hope it inspires you to give charity in whatever way you can, but really give it. And I'm going to challenge you that by the end of this episode, you pick up your phone, give at least a dollar to the charity of your choice in his merit and see if there might be somebody in your building, if you live in an apartment building like I do, on your block, someone around the corner, someone in another city maybe, or in another country who needs your help, and see if you could give to them consistently, even if it's a small amount. The world operates on energy, and a lot of people have been complaining lately that inflation this, and recession that and everyone's so poor and everyone even the wealthy people are poor now whatever it's it's all a story you know how we change that story by digging into our pockets and whatever little we come up with when you're jewish we're commanded to give 10 percent of everything we make you have a choice in every moment to listen to that commandment or not and when we do it there is a circle of giving that you're completing that's how we change it around that's how we make significant change. By not giving into the story, this person's stingy and that person's scorning, but to make the change yourself. Literally make change for someone else by giving them change. I also want to remind everyone that my show is going to New York City in October. Please, if you're in the New Jersey, New York, Tri-State, Philadelphia area, come to New York City to see my show. Please buy tickets. We are trying to sell out the theater so we can do two performances. You can go to barbheller.com backslash solo show. Help me help you help the world. And if you want to see my show, I am going on tour with it. So if there's a city that you live in where you feel like people could really benefit from a show about the dangers of cancel culture, a show where morality wins, a show where we can have a discussion afterwards and I can meet you and we can do a Q&A on 
how to make the world a better place, how to judge each other less and love each other more. I'd love to have that conversation with you in person. I look forward to hearing what you think of it. And without further ado, here's Donnie Fine. Donnie Fine. It is so nice to meet you. We are meeting for the very first time. I am so excited to learn more about you. I heard from our friend, our mutual friend, Hillel Fool, that you are the kindest person that he knows, um, or one of them, I should say, something along those lines. Um, And I know his family and I know his extended family really well. So I know that there's a lot of kindness and a lot of giving in his family. So for him to say that, and he's such a giving person, like you must Mm -hmm. be welcome. Um, Thank you for having me. It's it's great to be here. So you are also from the States, the United States, but you live in Israel. Correct. And like Hillel, you made Aliyah. So first tell me a little bit about your journey to like, why did you move to Israel? So, well, that starts really a long time ago. My father is, uh, grew up in Israel and uh, all my life I went to Zionistic schools uh, like modern Orthodox uh, schools in New York, and I marched in every Israel Day parade. The camps that I went to, like the camp that I went to as a kid, it was called Hatikva, and uh, it was just, you know, Israel was kind of like in my mind, just always the end game. I never in a million years thought that I would live here, and until a certain point, I didn't know that it was like a possibility to live here. Um, but then at a certain point, it just, it was just like, okay. It's not just the end game. It's also the means to get to the end. Um, I, not to sound somber, but when me and my wife lived in New York and we had a lawyer come to our house to, to do our wills, I, you know, we talk about our kids, we talk about our belongings. I'm just like, I don't really care about anything, but I have life insurance and I want to know that I'm going to be buried in Israel. Everything else, like, I didn't really care about. Everything will be okay. So I just, I had, I, and then it got to a point where just like, I, I had to be here. It, it started, I made Aliyah in 2009 and it got, it had gotten to a point where my heart was literally aching uh, if I wasn't here. And now when I go, when I go abroad, when I leave Israel, I, I feel that way. Like, it's like my heart is like in two and uh, this is just, it's not easy. I'm never going to say it's easy to be here, but this is, this is, this is my home. This is my family's home. Wow. That's not somber at all. That was really inspiring. Someone recently asked me, um, what I thought about guns, right? Cause that's like a huge hot topic here in, in the U S mm-hmm. like, you know, we have to stop the sales of guns. There's so many guns. Yeah. Like, Oh my gosh. I know. It's like crazy to think that a 14 year old in certain States can like walk into Walmart. And I'm always using the word Walmart because that's just like in the yeah. sickest part of my mind, like where I go, like so, for uh-huh. so many reasons. Right. But like right. to buy like a giant gun to like go shoot up a school, God forbid, God forbid, God forbid in my head. And I said, I was thinking the other day, I was just like sitting there thinking about Israel and how, you know, we have terror attacks there all the time, but not, I mean, it's a little less than 2001 and two and three when I was there, but I still have some PTSD from the terror that I experienced. And, and yet I was thinking about school shootings Mm -hmm. in Israel. And I I just kind of like started asking people, I was like, you guys, you must have school shootings in Israel. Like, cause everyone, and I, the, the number I got back was zero. I don't know if yeah. for a fact, but I've never heard ever on the news. And I know it would be reported because they always mm-hmm. catch us for, you know, doing anything wrong. Right. Never right. once heard of an Israeli student going into their own school and shooting up their, their own people. Like n- never, not one time. Um, right. I've heard it in, you know, Palestinian areas that, 
there are terror attacks where both Palestinians and, and Jews get killed, but I've actually never heard it the other way. And it really kind of centered me because I, I, I have this image of walking around the streets of Jerusalem and I see 18, 19, 20 year old kids, right? Like fresh out of high school with mm-hmm. guns. Every single one of them has a gun on, you know, and I feel, I feel the opposite feeling. Like I feel protected. I feel safe. Cause I, right. I trust those little kids you know, they're, and they're young, right. they're like right. scrawny little, like, you know, looking at their little homishes, like their Torahs on the, on the bus <laughs> and some of them are totally secular, but like a lot of them like believe in God and have yeah. this feeling like I know why I'm here. And then the second thought I had was, Oh, I know why there's no school shootings in Israel because we really value our lives. Like there is a, and we value, I believe Palestinian lives because we have so many Palestinian right. citizens that yeah. we, we protect and that fight in the army with us mm-hmm. for the land and for the democracy of Israel. And it's just like something that we don't hear about because the UN is always pointing fingers and saying, okay, but you know, China, Saudi Arabia, they have like zero <laughs> demerits. Okay, yeah. back to you. I have a son in the army, by the way. And uh, he's one of those guys that walks around with a gun and he's 21 years old. He's actually married. And um, he walks around with a big gun and he comes home to my house for Shabbat and he, and he takes apart his gun or he takes it to shul uh, where Kohanim. So he, when he goes up to do Berkat Kohanim, he has to leave it. Somebody, he, you can't leave your gun alone. And uh, you're, are you about Cohen? Yeah. Oh, nice. My wife's about Cohen and my mother's about Cohen. So my kids are like totally super Cohen. Like, yeah. It's really cool. Um, so, uh, you know, and it's the, the gun laws here are, are pretty strict. Like I can't get, I live in Beit Shemesh and I can't get a gun. I don't necessarily want a gun, but I have friends that do want to get guns. They actually had them for a little bit and they were taken away by the police. And because we live in a safe area, um, we can't get guns. And we're not so happy about that. Like if I, I, I want to know that if I wanted to get one, I can, I can get one. I should be able to get one. So, but the point is the, the laws here are really strict about guns. And if somebody were to pull out their gun and use it for any reason than to, I guess, to protect somebody, they're, they're, they can get in big trouble here. The laws are very, very strict. Wow. And I'm, I'm assuming you cannot join the IDF if you don't pass your psychological evaluation, correct? Well, there's tons of things you could do in the IDF. Most probably if, if you have some sort of psychological disorder or something, they're not going to put you on the front line. This particular son, he was in, in Shrem uh, just a few weeks ago. One of my favorite pictures uh, was him guarding in his full uniform and he's, he's wearing his tefillin, Shrem, which where there's a lot of violence in that area. And it was, uh, it was really cool to see. I want to define what Shrem and tefillin are for anyone who's listening, because there are non-Jewish people who listen to this and even Jews, they might be like, what <laughs> is it? Like, what is it? Shrem is a city in Israel where we're surrounded by certain areas of people who are known to to stake out and um, hurt uh, innocent lives, Jews and Palestinians right. alike. And so we're we're there as the Israeli Defense Force. The IDF is there to protect um, people who are trying to walk in to that area uh, with weapons on them to try yeah. to innocent lives and it has to be guarded 24 7 so just in case you have never heard about israeli history of war and modern israeli history of war that is actually what's happening right now in israel okay getting back to you what do you think the impetus was for hillel our friend who was also on this podcast he answered me in a way that i i will never forget 
Why would he call you a kind person? You're allowed to shamelessly plug yourself now. I'm not a naturally kind or giving person. I may be like a nice guy, but I'm, I'm not a naturally giving person. Hashem uh, placed me in this position. Hashem is one of the 72 names for God, just in case you're, if you haven't okay, figured that out yet by all these episodes, Hashem means the name or God. Okay. I was able to see a lot of people who are giving and I was kind of facilitating their giving. And through that, I became a giver. I don't, I don't know why he chose me specifically, but since I do feel like I was chosen to do this right now, I have, there's groups, there are four WhatsApp groups uh, that I'm running. There's, there are others that came out of my groups. They're in, in the couple of them in the U S a few of them in Israel. Uh, as of today, there's over 950 uh, people, members on the group that are, that are giving. We were raising about $75,000 a month, 250,000 shekels a month to help struggling families in Israel. Sunday morning, I woke up to a WhatsApp message from a friend of mine in Florida. He's not even on the group. And he goes, I love what you do. I want to send you, uh, I'm not going to say the amount, but it, but it was a significant amount of money. The, you know, the holidays are coming up, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and families need um, need money to, to make these holidays. Need a lot of, a lot of fam, a lot of their kids. And uh, it's expensive to be, uh, the Jewish holidays are expensive. And so we raised money for that. And he just sent me money and he's like, do, do what you do what you want. And I, I like what you're doing. And to me, I've never seen anything like that in my life. I didn't even ask him for money. I've really never asked anybody for money. I call the group mitzvah opportunity because I really believe that God, Hashem, is constantly putting opportunities in front of our faces to do good and to do bad, but hopefully more to do good. And will you choose to take that opportunity? I have a friend, his name is Avi. And God, Hashem, has blessed me with in Israel with incredible friends. One of my friends, Avi, he taught me how to seize an opportunity, whether it be in business or with your family, or, or in mitzvah, and doing good deeds and giving charity. Every It's gotten to a point where I ask myself a question, should I do it or should I not? I'm like, what would Avi do? What would Avi say? It's just through that, I hate to say that I, I am now a giving person because it's it's still a struggle because by nature, I said, I'm, I'm really not, but Hashem keeps giving me these opportunities, hopefully uh, making the right decision. Beautiful. And you said before, I said, I always ask everybody this question before I start interviewing them. And I say, what's one thing you would like to bring out of this interview? And you said, give till it hurts. What was the impetus for why you started doing what you're doing? I believe in the world there haves and there have not. And I can't necessarily prove it from sources from the Torah or anything like that, but God put people who have in this world and God put people who have not in the world to, to help each other. You know, the, the people who, who have can help the have nots by just giving to them. And the people who, who don't have, by taking from the people who have, they're helping the people who have. So everybody's helping each other. When you give, you really become a different person. We touched on this before, and Rabbi Leo D said it so beautifully in one of his interviews. It says in the Torah, the word venatnu. It's a palindrome. It goes back and forth. It's the, it's the same word. Venatnu means to give. But when you give, you're also getting. If you keep on giving and you give more, you step out of your comfort zone. Whenever somebody steps out of their comfort zone, you're learning. That's how you grow. If you don't step up to those challenges, you're just going to stay the same person that you are. Like, what's the point? somebody comes up to you and like they need X amount of money. I'll give you part of that. Give them the whole thing. You have it in your pocket for crying out loud. Why, why make the guy suffer? Why he's going to go out to 10 other people and ask for you? If you have it, give it and give extra also. It, it's only going to help you. But I want to know about you. What's your story? I have an issue with the deflecting stories from myself because I don't like talking about myself. But um, I'm married 25 years. So that's like the benchmark about about 24, 25 years ago. I was sitting in an accounting office in an accounting firm out of college. A friend of mine comes over to me and he says, 
out of nowhere. Like I was like a first or second year accountant. He was a little bit senior to me, but we were still friends. He goes, Donnie, I need $2,000. I'm like, why? <laughs> like, why are you asking me for $2,000? I just started working. I don't have $2,000. So he, he's like, well, my electricity in my house is going to be turned off and then all the food's going to spoil and we're not going to have lights and my wife's going to kill me. I'm like, I don't really know how to help you. I had this idea. Don't forget, like we forget how long ago there was no WhatsApp, there was no SMS. I went to my local community Yahoo group on email, put on the group. I said, I have a friend, his electricity is about to be turned off. He needs $2,000. Is anybody interested in chipping in? I really had no idea where it was going to go. Some woman messaged me out of nowhere. I have no idea who, who it was to this day. I'd love to find those emails to see who, who it was. She messaged me. She goes, I'm going to drop $2,000 at, at your door. Please give it to your friend to pay his electric bill. And I was just like, I was sitting in a, in a cubicle. I was just like, what just happened? It was the craziest thing. Like $2,000 is, is a lot of money, no matter when, who, what you are. $2,000 to just give to somebody is, is a lot of money. So I thought that was pretty awesome, but nothing happened until 2017. Many years later, I was on a bus coming home from Jerusalem to Beit Shemesh. And I look at, it was my first iPhone, iPhone 4S. I'm on Facebook and I look at posts from this woman who she says she has no money to buy food for Shabbat. I'm like, oh my gosh, how can a person not have money to buy food for Shabbat? So I reached out to her privately and I said, I'd like to help you, but I don't know who you are. You could be some loon looking for money. Can you just give me like a reference of somebody that I, I can vet your, your situation? So she gave me a number of a rabbi. Now we're like really close. I called him up. I said, hey, is, is what's the deal with this lady? Yeah, her family, her husband, this and that. And she could really use the money. So I called up a few of my friends. By the time Friday came along, I had collected a few hundred shekels uh, to get her money for food for Shabbos. Again, opportunities started coming my way. I wasn't really looking for them, but I would look on the Facebook again and I look in a local group and there was like families asking for money. And I was always like, how did I not notice this before? This must've been going on before. Like all of a sudden these, they're like coming at me. So I started a WhatsApp group called Tzedakah. Tzedakah means charity. With four of my friends, like every Thursday or Friday, I'd go to their houses and collect some money and bring it to these families. Before Corona, it, it grew to a point where at the beginning of Corona, I had 50 50 people on the group. And to me, that was like, that was big. There was no logo. There was no spreadsheet. And I would say, okay, I need whatever, a thousand shekels, a few hundred dollars. And people would message me privately and I'd write it on a napkin with a pen. When we hit the, the, the goal, I would post on the group money raised. At one point, I was sitting in my living room with my wife and I said to her, like, at the beginning of Corona, a lot of people that I knew were really struggling financially. So like people really wanted to give and they liked the fact that I knew the families personally. So I said to my wife, what if I had a hundred people on the group? I'm like, I have 50 now. What if I had 100? If I'm raising 1,000 shackles now, I can raise 2,000. So my wife is like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Of course, you know, it's, what's, what's just do it. I think I'd made a post on LinkedIn. Before I knew it, I had over 100 people on the group. And uh, then it started getting like more serious. Then I started putting it on Google Sheets. And even to this day, I don't keep track of individual donors. Like I don't care how much one individual gave over the year. I just care that the families get the money. So fast forward now, we, we have over 950 members on the group. Hillel Full was definitely a huge help in, in getting a lot of those people through his social media and people join the group. Even like right now, as I'm talking, people are filling out the application and I have to add them to the group. We're raising significant amounts of money for really needy families. On Friday, we did a raise for a guy. He's a taxi driver in Modine. He had a good business from what I stand before Corona due to Corona kind of really hurt his business. And he, to this day, he wasn't able to recover. So 
we raised for him 10,000 shekels, you know, just to give him a break to his rent, his food for a month. He's he, he's crying, not to me, to, to the friend that we have in common. Um, he's crying to him that he, he can't do this anymore. So, we, you know, let's get him some money so that he could breathe. Let him like, give him some time to figure it out. Wow. Unbelievable. And so how do you vet these people that they're not just like sitting in their house watching Netflix and eating ice cream? So I get that question a lot. And there's a few ways that families come to me. One of the ways is somebody in the group will know a family. They have a neighbor. They know somebody. Um, They'll approach me. We'll kind of vet it together. This is strictly for Israel, my groups. Uh, Wherever the people are in Israel, I always try to get to the, the local charity organization that might be able to, who maybe they know the family already, they've been helping them. If that's the case, then it's kind of easy to vet because they're already being helped by a charitable organization. And very often these charitable organizations, they have so many families to help. They can't help everybody with every every need when somebody's making a wedding. Like they don't have that extra money to, to give them. Another way is the organization. I, I'm working with multiple organizations around the country. They they just call me up. They said that I, we've been helping this family for a few years now on a monthly basis, but they just had a child or their car broke down. And, and this is a, a kind of an, an unexpected expense. Can you help? And they often think that I just throw money at, at people, at families. I often say when somebody calls me up and says they have a family in need, I said, my first question is, well, what what are you doing to help them? They need 10,000 shekels. So how about you raise five and I'll raise five? I want to encourage other people to feel like they're empowered to raise. Like, Even though from what I understand, this WhatsApp group concept and, and the crowdfunding concept of charity has never been done like this before. I really don't think that what I'm doing is anything that anybody can't duplicate. And it's been proven because there, there are now seven other groups besides mine that people are doing it in different communities. Well, my dream is for there to be a mitzvah opportunity type of WhatsApp group in any community where there are struggling families. And then another way, is, which is my least favorite, to be honest, is the families call me directly from a time perspective. When I'm dealing with the, with the family directly, I have to listen to their story, call the people to, to vet them. The group takes a lot of my time. And very often I'll just try really hard to find somebody in common that will be like the middle ground. You know, I, I'm very big on WhatsApp. I'm not a big phone call guy. Just WhatsApp me answers and questions and and, and how much is needed. And we'll, we make it work. This is healing my heart a little bit because I recently watched Painkiller on Netflix. I've heard of it, but I haven't watched it. It's a very well put together six part, six hour uh-huh series, horrifying story about a a Jewish family, sadly, but Jewish, like not, there's no mention of God. They have no connection to the state of Israel or, or Uh, what what our purpose is. There's no halacha. There's no nothing. There's no prayer and nothing. They don't even mention that they're Jewish. There's just one scene where Mr. Sackler says, you've got schmutz on your shirt. And so we know that he's, it was very painful to watch it. For so many reasons. The first one is I'm very much into health. I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm, I'm drinking decaf uh, iced tea here with a little bit of coconut sugar. So I don't know how healthy I really am. I'm not against medicine. I think it can really help us. But I think we are so quick to prescribe things and people getting addicted to things. And so this is about opioid addiction. It's also about greed. So much so that they paid off senators, FDA members, sellers, and doctors to be in cahoots and create this whole network, just like you have a network of of doing Uh kindness, rewarding people for being greedy and rewarding people for going against any semblance of governance in terms of protecting human beings. So much that 500,000 people lost their lives and the 500,000 humans that lost their lives to opioid addiction also hurt so many other lives that will be affected for generations because of the chemical that they put and took into their families that sometimes people tried once 
And now their systems are messed up forever for the money that was lost because of all the time and expense of creating the network around each of those people, the the trauma that all the people who knew them, whether they were just acquaintances, friends, or family, loved ones, soulmates, children, grandchildren, they're all affected for the rest of their lives, which also constitutes more generational trauma to go. And so they literally affected an entire generation of people around the world, definitely in America. Uh And now there are people that are still defending the choices of all of those people and the people who did it are still not in jail. So wow. as a Kohen, you know, like our, our tribe is very into law and like, you know, Pinchas, yeah. like if you're listening and you're not Jewish or you're Jewish and you don't know anything about being a Kohen, like my family line is very into like, there's a procedure, there's law and order, there's certain like mm-hmm. So I, even though I'm not like, look at my sleeves, I'm not like super religious per se. I, <laughs> I'm very spiritual. I'm a Balchuba. And there was a, period of time where I was like very into the letter of the law. And now I chilled out a little bit, but I'm like somewhere right. between growing up completely secular and being very religious. And I also have a very healthy sense of like, okay, there is certain laws and guidelines that I have to do, even if I'm tired or I'm feeling lazy or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm just, I'm just like that, right? I'm a tove soul. Right. This is all to say, to hear you say that you have developed this network based off of kindness and vetting other people based off of their kindness. And that it actually works. And I, I'm sure you might have a story or two where people tried to buck the system, but it's really making my soul and my heart feel refreshed and renewed because I just, and I'm so glad that I had this interview with you now and not last week when I was still in the throes of watching it because I wouldn't have appreciated it as much. I had to get through the whole series and feel like absolute dog poop. And I was really davening. I was really praying to God. How could you allow humanity to stoop this low? But then I think about the Holocaust. Like we've been here before where people Mm -hmm. stood by and bought into greed and did horrible things and created entire networks. God forbid we should never know this of Mm -hmm. really hurting humanity. So to hear this, it just, it just lights me up and makes me feel like there's hope. I say this in my musical that I just wrote. Um, we're going to New York and I'd love to bring it to Israel. It's called Messianic Moments and Cosmic Conversations. And it's all about how you can be the Messiah in the moment and you can bring your peace. I love that. Preparing the world. Right. Not that we should all think we're the Messiah and have yeah, the, yeah, yeah. whatever you think the Messiah is, the Mashiach, you be it for today. The thing that you need the world to do, you do it. You be it. You know, Rav yeah. Benny Friedman is like one of my Ravs. And he's like, all right, so you got a couple of years left in this world. What are you going to do with it? He's um, escaped death so many times as an IDF commando. And that's just being in the army. Like, forget like walking down the street or being in the Sparrows bombing and giving his seat up because he's also like you. And so horrible what happened to the person who sat in his chair. Right. But he says, now I have to I have to think about that every day and think, why was I saved in this moment? What what do I have to what to, to complete my mission? How can we who are listening to your beautiful story do that in our lives every day? What what is the thing that you would say we should do when we feel like, ugh, we want to throw our hands up, like humanity's doomed. We're just into greed. Like there is nobody that's gonna come to save us. Like, what would you say to those people? I think I was prepared for this question, not because I knew that you were gonna ask the question, but because I have four boys and uh, I feel myself as being a role model for these four boys. And the oldest is now 23, the youngest is 14. And they're incredible, strong boys and I love them dearly. And I feel like each one 
has a greatness in them. And I probably every parent sees this in their child, but I see in my children, they're going to change the world. But in order to change the world, you have to know yourself that you're lucky to be alive. My father's mother lost nine siblings in the war, in the Holocaust. Gary V said each of us had a one in 400 trillion chance of being born. If God chose you to be born, it's for a specific reason. I really believe this. If, if God chose you to be born and he allowed you to wake up in the morning, that means there's something freaking awesome about you. And Hashem, God, sees it. And now you have to go to the bathroom, look in the mirror and say, I'm awesome. I am great. What am I going to do? What's my, but what's my greatness? This WhatsApp group. In my life, it could be my greatness, but I don't know. Maybe when I'm 70, 80, I'll find something else. And you need to seize it. Don't let it pass because Hebrew uh, mitzvah, gererit mitzvah. The reward for a good deed is another good deed. I don't even like saying a good deed. For doing the right thing, right. God will give you another chance for you yeah. to do the right yeah. thing. I think when people yeah. say that, they think of karma. Like, oh, I did something nice for somebody, so someone's going to do something nice for me. And then they get no, a no, no. They don't see it right, right away. Meanwhile, right. you also didn't see the three people that didn't hit you because you were like turning the other way or on your phone right. while you were driving, yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, that's God's kindness. Yeah, for sure. I came up with the, with the saying, and again, I've never, like, I don't know if it's grammatically correct. Hashra'a gureret hashra'a. Inspiration breeds inspiration. When you're inspired and you inspire others, then others will inspire you. And it's like a boomerang. It just comes back to you and it goes to everybody and it goes around. Just by doing good deeds that are presented in front of you, it'll affect others and, and how you act will affect others. I, I really believe that we could change the world like that. You know, and I, you know, I, I think you get it. You know, like you're you're putting so much positivity into the world through this podcast. You're not just sitting on your couch staring at the ceiling, thinking, "What can I do?" You're you're doing something. And I think if every person would have that mentality, I can make a difference in my small way. That's one step closer to where we want to be as as humankind. Hearing you talk about how we help each other in our community, and close with a lot of African-Americans and I'm very drawn to that community. I made a Black Lives Matter video that that won a huge award for social justice, which I didn't ever conceive of that happening. You know, one thing I hear from my Black friends is you guys really take care of each other. And I wish we had that in our community. I've heard it so many times. It's nothing new. There's a jealousy that certain groups have towards Jews and then they turn it into violence and hate. And I'm not saying that my black friends would do that to us for that reason. But mm -hmm. I think that they're just vocal about it. Whereas other people might just like not vocalize it or just not even realize that they have that. Mm -hmm. And number one, I think it happens because often we're related to each other. <laughs> we, yeah. I mean, we, we all, we're all related to each other. All right. every human in the world is related. We all started from the same, you know, according to Jewish law, it's two people and right. you know, there's so I'm talking about Adam and Eve, but beyond that, you can look up anthropologically. We all started in the continent of Africa and mm -hmm. we all came from the same cells, right? That's why we basically have the same makeup. However, within the Jewish community, which is less than 1% of the world, I think it's still getting smaller, unfortunately, due to intermarriage. We have about 15 million people on the planet at the moment who often are related directly to each other because of the fact that for so many years until about two, 300 years ago, we were really just marrying each other. 
That's right. why we look alike. That's why, you know, even in like, if you go to Nigeria today and you meet, meet a Nigerian Jew, there's a certain look that they have, even with a different color. Really? Skin. Yeah. So we have like a certain affection for each other just because we're related. But number two, we have mitzvahs. We have commandments that, that actually distinctly say you need to give to your family of origin first, then your small community, then the right. rest of the world. And right. it's not that we're being, oh, I love my people more than other people. Of course, that exists to a degree. But I have so many Jewish friends, secular Jewish friends, Orthodox Jewish friends that will go out of their way to help non-Jewish people before they help yeah. Jews. So it's not really the case. However, I want to speak to this idea that people might get agitated by, which is, especially since we're approaching Rosh Hashanah, the new year, and everyone on the planet feels it. You know it. Mm -hmm. It's not just like a Jewish day of like, let's reflect. It's the whole world is. When we're feeling that feeling, which is about to come, which is what am I doing here? Like, while we're evaluating that, Donnie, tell us, what is the thing that we can talk to each other about so that everyone on the planet has a chance to help their own community, their their own family, then their own community, and then the world at large. What what is that thing that you feel like you're finding within you the, these groups on WhatsApp that they have that other people are just not choosing to do? I think it's gratitude. The common denominator with a lot of the people in the group is that they've learned to be grateful to God, to Hashem, for the things that they have, also the things that they that they don't have. Prayer, a prayer every morning. It's called a Tefillat Toda, written by Rav Arush. Talks about thank you, Hashem, for all the things that you have, for, for the ability to breathe, for the ability to think about the ability to breathe. Then it also talks about the things that you don't have, the hardship in, in your life, and be thankful for that as well. Those are all tests. And I think that's what the world could be missing in terms of just getting the world to a whole other place. It could have started where you didn't even exist. Be grateful for the fact that you exist at all. Be grateful for the fact that you're healthy, that you have two legs and two arms. Some people may not even have that. There's a well-known mountain biker. I think, if I'm not mistaken, he lost uh, part of his leg in, uh, in a war, in, in fighting for Israel. And he's an incredible mountain biker. The guy is so thankful and inspirational. Be thankful for the fact that you have two feet. This guy doesn't have two feet and he is so thankful and so in inspiring. I'm 46. I didn't even understand the concept existed until I was 42, 43 years old. Like I went through my entire life. If I could leave this this podcast and, and there's there's younger people listening to it, other than give till it hurts, I really want to say it to, to people, the message that I want to give to people is be grateful for literally every single thing that you have and things that you don't have because you can't if you if you're grateful then you're you're always going to want to give you're, you're going to be in a good place and I'm not a mental health professional at all by far I'm not at all I just know from my own life and seeing from my my family that a lot of mental health issues could potentially be prevented by being grateful for the things that you have you're not going to be so upset from the things that you don't have. Gorgeous. What's sure. the biggest thing that you ever had to forgive in your life? I made Aliyah, came to Israel 14 years ago. I'm not going to say that I had the most secure financial plan, meaning the numbers didn't add up, but I was going anyway. But I found myself living here in Israel, which I knew deep down in my heart, that's what Hashem, what God wanted me to do and for me to bring my family here. And after being here for five years, whatever it was, I was suffering religiously. 
I was suffering financially. I literally used to walk to shul on Shabbat morning, talking to Hashem, dropping F-bombs. I was so angry at it. I was like, I did what you told me to do, what you wanted me to do. And this, and now you're kicking me. Not only are you kicking me, I'm down and you're still kicking me. And I think it took a good five years. I had to like rewind and, and there's not enough time in this podcast to discuss what, what that means. But like, I, I kind of undid everything that I thought that I had done to myself to become a better person. I undid myself. And then without even realizing it, I Hashem gave me the opportunities to build myself back up. But I couldn't have built myself back up without forgiving Hashem. I'm a human being. Hashem created me. I can't forgive Hashem. But on some level, it's forgiveness, but it's like on a human level of forgiveness where I had to like say to Hashem, you know what? What happened? Well, everything, the, the struggles that you made me go through, I understand. It was for a reason. It was so that I could rewind unravel myself to build myself back up. So if, if I could say in my life, and, and I really believe that I'm a completely different person, and a lot of teenagers are angry with God because they don't know to do that. They don't know to take a step back. And they're always trying to move forward. Sometimes you have to move back in order to move forward. I was somehow, there were signs, whatever they were. I think that's my greatest story of, of forgiveness of, of, my, of my own. Well, I have tears in my eyes. I don't know if you can see I'm that. Sorry. No, no, no. Please don't cry. <laughs> don't be upset. It's great. I if I don't cry during the podcast episode, something might be off. I'm a crier. <laughs> and I'm just very I mature. love crying, by the way. I'm I'm a huge crier. I'm actually surprised that I'm not crying now. I have such a disdain for when people do the wrong thing publicly. It really, really bothers me. Especially when they're representing our family, the Jewish people, right? Or the Americans, like, because I feel such a patriotism towards America and also in Israel. I mean, I'm feeling less so now because I really don't love what's happening with our country in so many ways. And this is not a, a shot at, at Democrats or Republicans. I'm just in general, I, feel, I see a lot of apathy and just ever since COVID, yeah. even way worse, like depression and sitting in anger and such a lack of, of faith in God, in, in one another, in humanity. It, on some level, people are waking up and and realizing that it's a call to action and doing things the way you are. But there's also such a group of people, especially here in LA, where it's just, there's everyone sounds like an angry teenager who has their period. It's just like, and, and I mean the men too. I don't mean just the women. I mean like that awful, like, That's horrible. yeah, I don't mean to say it in a rude way. I, I'm not putting women down. I'm just saying like, it's just so <laughs> And I'm so grateful because I've really been struggling lately in my prayers. Like, Hashem, what else can I do if we're supposed to be a light unto the world? Not yeah. just the Jews, but to everyone's supposed to be a light. Everyone has a, a mission here. And right. it, it really hurts when people choose not to do their thing. I've read a lot of Hasidic stories, these old Jewish tales that like my great-grandparents knew. Today, you hear them. Sometimes a Rebbe or Rebetzin will sit down with a group of kids on Shabbat. Like I had that job for years. I was the director of education at B'nai David and... I would mm -hmm. sit with kids and tell, you know, Hasidish stories about wow. Hanavi or Yesala. I go to the Happy Minion, so I, I constantly hear people from the Moshav. It's beautiful. And we have this beautiful vault of like Hasidish stories. Who knows if they're even true, but they the lesson. But they're people like you. <laughs> like you're a modern day Yosala. Like you're the guy that's like going to, sorry, I'm just overwhelmed. You're like going to people's houses, 
And you're like, hey, I got some money for you here. And there's no like red tape, you know, an, an application, newspaper article about how you stole the money. You're like literally doing God's work. And I'm just so overwhelmed. And now I get why. Because what you just described, like how you already had that moment where you said, God, I'm upset with you. And you learned from it. What's my litmus test for Donnie? How do I know he's not, God forbid, like, or how does the listener know that Donnie's not like some guy who's just schnurring people and packing it, you know, in his freezer or whatever. It's so obvious why people trust you because you're honest about your relationship with God. That's it. That's the end of the story. Like my dad is a psychologist and I've talked about my issues with him and we had a whole episode where I forgave him on the podcast. And I mean, I've, for many many years and we've had a long history and there was domestic violence in my family my parents did the best they could and it was really hard and I'm still healing from my childhood this is why I do what I do because people are healing and I want to help but one of the greatest things that my dad does is he goes to jails and he helps criminals get less sentences wow he's defended 13 year old murderers who did a school shooting and he finds their humanity and he shows the court, though. Like, that's such a holy job that my dad does that. Right. Can I just say what you just said was is incredible that your dad does that. I do what I do. You do what you do. Your dad does what he does. Yeah. My wife does what she does. For sure. Everybody, if everybody would just do their <laughs> own thing. Right. The right thing. Just do yeah. pick one thing and do it awesome. I know. No, one thing for the sake of Hashem, for the sake of God, do it awesome. But what I'm trying to get at, Donnie, is that when I know what it feels like to be upset with God and to have a relationship with God where you speak it out and you say, this sucked. Why did you know? Not why, because that's a bad question. I had to learn that, but that's a bad question to ask God because we'll never know. It's not our job to know what. It's none of our business. What can I do with this test? How do I deal with, how do I even pick myself up when, you know, broken engagement or I'm 47, I'm a little older than you and I'm still not married or, you know, I had a difficult childhood, all the things, or I'm low on cash or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. when we actually verbalize our prayers like that and we, he's like, and we open our hearts the way you just shared about it. And then we tell other people about that moment. That's how we save humanity. You just yeah. taught me something in the in your answering because when what I was going to say about my dad is he went to Hurricane Katrina, the scene of where it happened way back when in like the early two thousands, I think it was, and he went to sit with a bunch of the kids who were now homeless or still looking for their parents, and he gave them free therapy. And do you know what the American Red Cross did to my dad? They said, get out of here. You're not one of our volunteers. He said, I don't know about you, but I flew here to help kids. So I'm going to do my job for free. And you let me know when I need to leave. And they were like, whoa, you know, and when, the reason I'm bringing that up is because there's so much red tape with these bureaucratic, weird NGOs and nonprofits. And then of course people get greedy because no one's checking on them. But I'm yes. saying you could start a whole movement, Donnie, about how to run a real NGO by getting back to basics and mm-hmm. having something not at a federal level, but in every town, right? Yeah. Every town have somebody who's who's the Donnie of their town 
And mm-hmm. not to make it a cult, but somebody like you who's like, oh, I'm, I'm, gonna sure. vet, I'm gonna vet you. I'm gonna make sure you really need that money. And I'm gonna also yeah. make sure that the people vetting you are, and I hate to say it like that, but we live in a, anybody would be tested that way. So yeah. that to me sounds a lot better than just having a nonprofit where we know the money goes to a lot of the times the employees and keeping the lights on and the fact that the renter's insurance is crazy and then the landlord, you know what I mean? I worked at a not-for-profit a uh, bunch of years right before Corona. That was one of my jobs. Like I, I was, I was going through a hard time, and I was, I would have taken any job. And and um, so I know. I, I not only did I, I always didn't like giving money to organizations because of all the reasons that you just stated. But then when I actually worked for one, and I was just like, wait a minute, there's this huge gorgeous building. They're doing great work. They're so top heavy. I literally physically couldn't raise money for them. That's when I learned I'm not a fundraiser. I'm a realtor. Sometimes I raise money for real estate deals. And I don't look at this mitzvah opportunity group as fundraising. I look at it as raising funds. If I'm raising funds for a real estate deal, I'm giving an investor an opportunity for an incredible ROI. It's the same thing here. And this is the way I look at it. I'm giving people the opportunity to invest in something where the the ROI is is up to the sky. There is a um, very absent level of stories like this in the zeitgeist because they don't sell pharmaceutical drugs and they don't move the needle on CNN because it's like, oh, some guy in Israel is actually, like, some American that moved to Israel is like helping people who are poor with, or who are going through a rough time with money from like regular people. Like, oh, that's right. nice of the story. We don't, we don't want that on the news. It's too right. hopeless. We want people to feel like, the world is ending. So um, I would say go big or go home. Like, you know, and you're already home. So you might as well keep going big. God bless you. I know, I know you're just, you're just very humble, but um, if I can inspire you, well, you're already on my podcast. So the word's getting out. (laughs) I go to a shir every day. A class. It's five minutes from my house. And the rabbi is very well known in the Jewish world and people donate a lot of money to his cause and he and he announces their names like every morning before he starts this year and a lot of people say write in their name as anonymous but he says their name anyway at first i thought it was kind of weird but now i totally agree with him it's inspiration your inspiration breeds inspiration somebody sees their friend giving they're going to want to give why, why not say your name you're inspiring to somebody you don't need to be that guy who, who who wants his name up on the on the wall of the building if you're doing something that's awesome let the world know and the world will know. That's from Newsies. I think that's Alan Menken wrote that. Yeah, it's a, you got to watch that. I have a few guidelines on the group. One of them is we don't support families like on a monthly basis. We don't have the bandwidth. I don't have tons of money at my fingertips to just give families X amount of dollars or shekels every month. But there's a couple families that I really believe the haves and the have nots. They're a very special family. They're in a position where they're just, they're not going to have. They have four kids, two of the boys and the father they have some genetic disease but if you look at them you could tell so we're helping them for a number of years low-income housing here in israel so where they live is not exactly the prettiest place two of the boys had to go to america to get head surgeries uh, to alleviate some pressure from from their head their eyes so somebody paid for their tickets and the mother insisted that the whole family go because the father may not be capable of if he, she would leave the two younger kids home with him 
So the whole family had to go to America. Tickets to America from Israel were sponsored, incredibly. Not by me. I actually, I'm not taking credit for that. I didn't, my group did not pay for the tickets. The mother actually did some networking of her own and somebody in America got those tickets. So then they ended up going to America and a wonderful woman from Far Rockaway drove them from JFK to, to Philadelphia, which is like a three and a half hour, four hour drive. And they get there and then they had to move to Brooklyn because the insurance wouldn't cover them if they lived in Philly. So they were in Brooklyn for a certain time. Finally, they got, went to Philly and they got the surgeries, And but they had to recover. Two of the boys had metal halos around their head with screws attached to their head. I, I don't know how they functioned, but we I put a post on LinkedIn. I said, this family is now in Lakewood. There's a family from Israel who is in America for medical purposes and reach out to me and, and we'll help. We'll figure out how to help. I'm like, I'm in Israel. I can't physically do anything. So we, we created the WhatsApp group separate for this family. Whatever need this family needs, please just get it done. If you need money, we're the group is providing the money. It was Erev Passover, Erev Pesach. You know, that's like a really expensive holiday to make. And they were still in America. I texted the mom. I said, do you have anything for Passover? She goes, we have nothing. So I rallied the troops. Two special individuals basically said, get a list from the mom what she needs for Passover. It was a laundry list long. I mean, you know what it's like to make Passover in the best of circumstances? It's not easy. She had nothing. Pots, pans, everything from soup to nuts. She, she needed it. They put it in a box, shipped it to her. That was after throughout the whole time that they were there. A family from Israel doesn't have winter clothing. They were there from December, January, February, which is like the coldest months. So coming from Israel, they had nothing. They had sent them winter clothes, toys for the kids. So much chesed, so, so much was done for this this family. So much money was raised. And now they have to come back to Israel. And we're like, okay, who's paying for their tickets to come back to Israel? So the guy who paid for the tickets to get to America said, look, the family's been supported for the last seven months by you guys. You guys can also figure out how to pay for the tickets. At first, I was a little bit upset at him. Then I was like, you know what? He's right. We did take responsibility for the family and we're going to continue. So I reached out to an organization, Hatsala Air, actually. And I said, you guys, you fly people back and forth for medical purposes all the time. Can you get this family on the flight? I'm not going to say, I don't want to say any names, but basically an, an individual ended up sponsoring their tickets back to Israel. Six tickets. We were, two things were going to happen when they get back to Israel. Number one, they live in a shoebox of a mold infested apartment. And one of the boys who had surgeries needs to get bar mitzvah. So right away, we raised money for the fill-in, which was a large amount of money because they wear two pairs to fill in, Rashi and Rabbeinu Tom. They're a, a Breslov family. And, and explain uh, what the fill-in is for people who are like, wait, what? what so fill-in in English, in this is phylacteries. I don't know what phylactery is. It's these boxes that you wear on your arm and on your head, and there's straps that go around your arm and come down your chest. Wait, that, wait, wait, um, wait, wait. They're not just boxes. Hold on. So in the boxes, it has uh, pieces of, of parchment that are like words from the from the Torah, the, the like the Shema. It's in the tefillin, and it's it's a it's a symbol of a connection between us and God. We connect the heart and our head to God. So, and the Jewish men put on tefillin every morning. So when a boy gets bar mitzvah, when he's age 13, he gets a set of tefillin, and that's when he's supposed to put on tefillin every day for the rest of his life. I love paying for boys tefillin because when I say me, I just, I mean people on the group. 
every single time for the rest of this boy's life that he puts on a pair of tefillin, we're getting a zchut an honor in that laying of the tefillin. For the next 107 years, we're part of those tefillin, and I think that's awesome. We've sponsored dozens of pairs of tefillin. The boys are still recovering. They can't come home to a mold-infested apartment. We raised 62,000 shakels, and this is not the norm. People shouldn't be calling me like, oh, I need my apartment renovated. And I was working with a local organization, with a builder who did it all within, within a budget, and we raised the money. The family came home to a brand new, cleaned from mold, air purifiers, vented apartment, newly freshly painted and cleaned. Um, somebody else in their building sponsored uh, beds for them and they came home. I wasn't there when they walked in the door, but I totally should have been there with a video camera. Uh, but it, but I kind of felt I wanted them to have their private moment. I'm, I'm like that. Like I don't, I don't infringe on other people's privacy. I wanted them to come home. I wanted they knew what we did, and I just wanted them. They're they're so tired that the trip from Israel to from America to Israel, it's exhausting. And I just wanted them to, but the mother left me the most beautiful message thanking her. But then we now we have to deal with the bar mitzvah. How are we making a bar mitzvah party? Uh, there's a wonderful another guy in my neighborhood. I said to him, I'm the worst planner in the history of the world. I asked my wife, a year and a half ago, we made a wedding and a bar mitzvah. I literally sat at my desk over here working just to make sure that it would get like paid for. But I had nothing to do with the planning other than taking my boys to buy suits. I don't like planning anything. So I said to him, Binyamin, you plan the bar mitzvah. We're paying for it. Just do what you got to do. He's done this before. Paid for uh, a whole, a DJ who really gave us his services at cost, a, a caterer, giveaways. The guys from New York sent, sent in uh, prizes for all the kids. But the fact of the matter is, the boy didn't have a lot of friends. And, and after the first dance, kind of like with the adults and a couple of friends, it kind of got dull. So um, a miracle happened. I, I could honestly say that I saw an open miracle right in front of me where I see a boy in a thank you Hashem pajama uh, onesie, like a teenage boy. I go, what are you doing here? He goes, for the bar mitzvah. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, we heard about this bar mitzvah and I'm here with two of my friends and there's 60 more boys coming. There's a camp in Ramapa Chemish called Camp Gavra. One of the mothers of one of the campers saw or heard what was going on at the, at the bar mitzvah. She texted her son, who texted his older brother, who told the head of the camp or the division head, the boys head counselor of the camp. He said, boys, night activities canceled. We're going to the bar mitzvah. The DJ pumped up the music. All of a sudden, you have 60 boys dancing around this boy and his father. It was the greatest bar mitzvah I was standing next to the principal. It was also a friend of mine. We were watching the boys come down this ramp and we were just like, Mashiach's going to come right now. The Messiah is going to come right now. Mashiach's going to come right now. Right now, we just expected the expected the Beit HaMikdash to come down, the Holy Temple to come down on that party because I, I can't imagine Hashem being any happier than at that very moment when there were, there were 60 teenage boys who could have been doing anything else in the world, but they decided to come to this bar mitzvah and dance their hearts out, but not just like dance. They like it was. It was like it was like incredible. I give the WhatsApp group major credit because we kind of like there's a Hebrew word movil brought it along the the whole journey, and it made me so proud of what we were able to accomplish. I think we we changed this boy's life. Matter of fact, next night the camp invited the boy and his father to a barbecue. They were putting a barbecue, and they they danced around him again. It's it was just like it was just like never ending, and it was just just so beautiful. It was it was absolutely incredible. And on so many levels too. I mean, I've I've been a teacher in a classroom and outside the classroom teaching Hebrew school out of my car basically oh years and running camp programs and being at Camp Ramah and basically run a lot of after school programs in formal education and 
as someone who teaches kids like K through 12 for so many years, 25 years already, one thing I hear more and more, especially now is what are you going to do? They're teenagers. I heard a parent tell me three years ago, are you kidding? My daughter's 12. She's like a terrorist. That was literally the sentence she said. And I remember writing it down and like shuddering because I was like, that's horrible. Like to say that about your own kid. And what I feel from that apathy and that pain is that people just expect the bare minimum and sometimes less from their children because of the, like you said, they're a bunch of teenage. When you said the sentence just now, these were 60 teenage boys that could have been doing anything else. People don't even realize that this kind of thing is possible because they have so given up. They gave up on themselves as parents. They gave up on themselves as community members. They gave up on themselves as teenagers. And we just keep doing that humanity. So when you hear stories like this, it just, it's, it's actually unbelievable. It gets in your, into your kishkas, into your intestines. Like flame is, do you hear the people saying like, yeah, if this can happen, it's amazing to me. And, and people might not be understanding when someone says it's like, we're going to bring Mashiach. That means like the Messiah could come right now. That's how special this is. And when you say the base of right. just clarifying, we had two temples in Israel and they were destroyed thousands of years ago because people were at first too into each other. And then the second time, because they, they were too much into God and we need to bring the temple back. There's a Holy temple in, in Jerusalem that only has one outside wall right now, the wailing wall. Uh, we need to bring the temple back because we have to find a balance apparently between worshiping God too much and not being there for each other. And also being there for each other, but not forgetting about God. And when we as a humanity figure out how to do that, the temple will be rebuilt and the Messiah will come. Or God forbid the Messiah is going to come because we're treating each other so poorly and we forgot about God so much, which sometimes feels like the way of the world, that the Messiah is going to come just to save all of us. And I'm still betting on the first one. I'm still betting that people people like you still exist. We together are going to continue to fan that flame and there will be more. There will be more. Man. And it only takes oh, a small people like Margaret Mead said, like I said in my show, to make the world better. And those people, those people, the ones who are actually doing the work like you are and that I'm trying to echo, we're going to make sure that that temple gets rebuilt. We're going to make sure that the Messiah comes for the right reasons. So please, oh, if you're to this, pull over on the side of the road, text somebody that is having a bad day that you know they're having a bad day because you read their Facebook post and you thought, why are they complaining again? Say, hey, can I have a Zoom with you? Can I come over and bring you a hot chocolate? Can I make chicken soup for you? Can I take you out for lunch? Do something right this second. Don't wait because you'll you'll know you're going to put it off. Stop the car. Stop what you're doing. Stop walking and just do one thing right now to bring Mashiach. Do something right this second because of how amazing this guy Donnie is. All right. So how do we get in touch with you so we can continue to support you? The website, mitzvahopportunity.com. That's the best way. There's a join the group button. The button further down the page where it says start your own group. I just had about 250 new people join the group and onboarding is a little bit of a process. In terms of like the way the WhatsApp group works, I have a WhatsApp chat bot, which has really helped me months ago and we're still perfecting it. You can find me on LinkedIn as well. If you want to reach out to me personally, have any questions. Always happy to talk about mitzvah opportunities. And can anybody give or do they have to be Jewish? Do they have to live in Israel? Can anyone ask for help? 
anybody can can go to the website and join. It's not just vetting the families who are helping. It's also vetting the people on the group. That's uh, that's also very important. In terms of families we help, I strictly help families in Israel. If I would help families outside of Israel, that would be a whole other balagan, a whole other venture. But there are groups uh, outside of Israel that, that have, like I said before, that have been created. In terms of like what we raise money for, I find myself saying no a lot. People reach out to me for a lot of interesting things. And I don't um, doubt the need. It's, we have we have a niche. They're immediate stopgap emergency needs. That's what we, we raise money for. I'm not raising money for if somebody's in Israel, they desperately need to take a trip to America to go visit their mother who's sick. I'm not denying that that's a need, but that's probably not something that we're going to be raising money for because of the fact that if I raise money for that, that means I'm not raising money for a family that doesn't have food on the table. I can't just can't justify that. Yeah, I understand. I think I know what your TED talk is going to be, how to give until it hurts. Yeah. If I would ever give a TED talk, that's probably what it would be about. What's a TED talk when you're doing what you're doing every day? I see a lot for you and, and the world needs to hear this story. Great. Well, I have so enjoyed meeting you. Yeah. Thank you, you. You restored my faith in humanity. I am still felling over here. I'm still crying good tears. It's emotional for me to hear that. It's not how I started my life. For me, for you to say something like that to me really means a lot. Ditto. Okay, God bless you, Donnie. <laughs> I'm going to see you in Israel. I can't wait. I really can't wait. Thank you. Okay, take care. So many great takeaways from this episode. Here we go. God gives us the opportunity for good and bad all the time. Which ones do you take? There are those who have and those who have not in this very moment. The haves are supposed to give to the have-nots. That's one thing that Donnie knows for sure. Receiving is also a form of giving. So when you allow someone to receive from you, just know that they're also giving to you and it's a privilege and you should feel humbled to give to them. If you're here right now, God wants you to be here and you have to figure out what is awesome about you and choose to do the things you love to do and use your gifts now. Don't put them off. Mitzvah, Gererit Mitzvah. That means a good deed or a commandment that you follow. If you do it, you get more commandments to follow, more good deeds to do. Inspiration, gereret inspiration, or in Hebrew it would be called hashrara gereret hashrara. It's like a boomerang. As soon as we inspire someone, someone else will get inspired. Whatever you think the Mashiach, the Messiah, is, be it in the moment. Rav Bini Friedman. One of my rabbis always says, So you've got some extra time here on this planet today. What are you going to do with it? There were a few key terms we said in Hebrew, and I'm going to go over those now. I said I'm a balat tshuva, and that means someone who is returning to their roots of Judaism. I was not really given a formal Jewish education, and I'm still learning, but uh, at around age 19, I started talking to God, and then around age 24, I started studying Torah and became more observant, and so some people would call me a Baalat Teshuvah. I'm also a Kohen, as is Donnie, and he says that his wife and his children are all uh, Kohanim, and that is one of the three tribes left from the 12 tribes of Israel. If you want to learn more about that, you can just look it up, but we are part of the Kohanim tribe, and it, you don't have to have the name Cohen. In fact, there's lots of people with the last name of Cohen or Kohan that are not part of the Kohen tribe. It all depends on where the patrilineal 
uh, descent is from. Hashem is a word that means God. It literally is broken down into ha, the, and shem means name, so the name of God. There are 72 names for God in Hebrew, and Hashem is the sort of code word for Adonai, or the compassionate God that rules over the entire world. Tefillin is a men's prayer garb. Uh, Sometimes women can choose to wear them. In fact, Rashi, the great commentator, his granddaughters, I believe, wrap tefillin. I choose not to, and most women that I know don't wear them. It doesn't mean that you can't, but it is a mitzvah that men take on, usually around the time of bar mitzvah, and they are these small, about two, three-inch boxes that they put on their head in the third eye chakra, if you will, and then also on their arm. And inside of these little boxes is a scroll that contains the prayer for the Shema. And it is a very centering, beautiful prayer. And they also say that prayer while they wrap it around their body. And it is supposed to hit the body and hit the energy in a beautiful way that kind of centers a person in the morning. Some people feel that they could say that prayer all the way till sundown, but as long as the sun is out, they might say it. There is an actual order to giving charity when you're Jewish. We have this idea that there's something called Dalit Amos, which means around four feet around a person. So that is giving to self, giving to the people who live in your home. If you have a spouse, children, parents, grandchildren, whoever lives in your home, your vicinity, that is your family of origin. Those are the people you give to first. Then you would give to your community. If you have a synagogue or a church that you go to, you would give to that second. And then you would give to the city or the town that you live in. And then beyond that, the state and then the country and then the rest of the world. And the reason why there's an order to things, I think it's very beautiful, is because just like we learn on a federal level, sometimes it's way better for communities to give to each other than someone who lives far away but might be in the same country. Same thing with tzedakah or charity. It's always good to give closest to home because you can literally see with your own eyes and feel and hear and sense what the community needs versus what someone might need in, a, in another state or another country. Tani believes that in order to change the world, one, be grateful that you're alive, and two, know that you have something very special to give this world and go and do that thing. He says if we all just did what was the right thing to do as much as we possibly could and then did the one thing we're really, really good at and got really good at that thing, or maybe it's two or three things for you, that would make the world so much better. And I tend to agree with The people in his groups are grateful for what they have and what they don't have. And he brought up Rabbi Arush. It's spelled A-R-U-S-H. He has a beautiful prayer called the Tefillah Todah. Tefillah in Hebrew means prayer or to imagine while praying. That prayer talks about that whatever you do have is meant for you and you should be grateful for it and even be grateful for what you don't have, meaning the little problems or challenges that I have in my life, even though sometimes they can feel so big, I should be so grateful for those because there are people who have way bigger challenges and be grateful for the hardships that you don't have and be grateful for the things that you have because every single one of them is a gift. He also kept saying over and over again, give till it hurts. Donnie had to forgive God for putting him through a rough spot, lots of tests with money and moving his family to Israel from America, and it wasn't always easy for them. And it turns out that when he realized that 
his anger and his ego were sort of getting in his way, then he realized he may have been the cause of some, some or most of his suffering. And then even though he technically was forgiving God for not showing that to him, he was able to see, aha, I'm the one, as I take a step back, I'm the one who's causing this suffering. If I just am grateful for what I have, I'm going to get more and then I can cut out the suffering part and just know that whatever I have is great. And I brought out in that story that when he was able to verbalize how he really felt towards God by saying the F-bombs, not that I encourage saying profanity to God, but by really just being honest and speaking heart to heart with God, so to speak, if God had a heart, then we can actually get clearer and closer to what we really want, what we really need. I had the same experience in the beginning when I started talking to God at 19 and every Dan will be dared me. I've talked about that in other episodes. You know, that was the moment I, I, I looked up at the sky and I said, if you're really there, make it rain. It got a little misty out. And I said, if you're really there, make it windy. And it did. And then I said, God, I'm really upset with you. You suck. I actually said those words. And for me, that was very helpful because it would opened up the conversation Again, I'm not saying we should aspire to shout obscenities at God, but it, it's it's a marriage. It's not, um, you know, a one blind date. It's 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 a it's a marathon. It's 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 there's a longevity to our relationship with the divine. And so, if we can just open up our heart and say, I'm really frustrated right now. I really thought that by this age or this stage in my life, I would have this this or this, and I I, I need your help here because you are the creator of everything, and I and I'm frustrated right now. That's how we get closer, and that's how we can save our humanity and others. And one thing that I noticed in the story that Donnie told about the 60 teenage boys who saved this uh, bar mitzvah, I really was in shock that, that they were able to give up their night plans and just go to this bar mitzvah just by hearing that this kid didn't really have many friends. But I think there's a beautiful lesson here, which is don't underestimate how a person at any age, whether they're young or old, could bounce back or forward to do a miracle, to create a miracle. I think all too often teenagers are given a bad rap, like, oh, they'll never do something kind. They're just teenagers. They're they're in their own way and they're negative and they're angsty and they don't they don't do kindness. They don't do chesed, as we would say in Hebrew. But it's just not true because we saw it in the story. We also touched on the fact that the Jewish people are waiting for our third temple. Uh, there were two built in Jerusalem. The first one was destroyed because we were worshiping each other too much, and we were kind of forgetting about our prayers and, and talking to God. And the second temple was destroyed because we were talking too much to God and not really uh, concerned with what each other needed, and we were judgmental of each other and saying, I am closer to God than you, and things like that. So we really need to find that balance between having a God to worship, loving God, and serving God with kindness, and then also serving one another, not that we are gods, but that we we can take care of each other as though each of us is in the image of God. So if you're inspired by this episode, please go out and do something nice for someone right now. If you're moved by this story, do something right this second. Don't just listen and say, oh yeah, I'll have to do something later. Go do it now. Call the person that you need to call. Say hello on your way home to somebody who could really use a visit, even if it's just 10 minutes. Tell them that you've got 10 minutes to spare and you just want to sit with them. Give them a hug. Look at them in the eye. Tell them they're important. Go bring flowers to somebody. Stop off and get some somebody something from the grocery store that they need. 
Don't put it off and have a beautiful, beautiful rest of your evening. If you know somebody with a great story about forgiveness, failure, or freedom, please share them with us. If you learned something new or feel like something from this episode can inspire someone else, please share the episode on your Facebook page or Instagram and tag that person and tag us too. You can find all of our social medias, drop us a note, or join our newsletter at www.c1beautifulsoul.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you hear podcasts. May we all choose to look for the light in ourselves and each other in all ways, always. Always.